All right. Well, good morning. I'm going to get this guy connected, and we're going to get into it. So you guys can't hear me if I do this thing. Just, just yell at me. But I'm, I'm using this guy because I'm just, I'm just more comfortable with it because I use it all the time. Um, so you guys can turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, and then also put a finger in Ephesians chapter 4. So Hebrews 11 and Ephesians chapter 4. So I guess, I know Isaac said my name, but I'm Roger. I get to be uh, associate pastor here. Um, so it's, it's a real honor to get to uh, share with you guys this morning. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. So as Isaac said, I'm going to say it. Happy Mother's Day, right? Uh, first to my sweet bride, uh, as we anticipate uh, our, our baby coming, as you guys found out, baby Cornelius. Um, and... Uh, I'll just, I'll just let you guys know, clear the air, because some of you guys have come with genuine concern, like, you're not going to name your baby Corn Cop. Are you really going to do that? And the answer is no. You can all breathe a collective sigh of relief. That's not happening. That's a joke. That's just what we tell people, because we're going to tell him his name before um, we tell anybody else. So if you're wondering what his name is, uh, we'll let him tell you. <laughs> um, so happy Mother's Day. First Mother's Day to my bride. Um, and also just want to give a shout out to my own mom, and I don't know if my grandma's here this service, but both of them have just sacrificed a lot over the years and um, given a lot to show their kids and grandkids the love of Jesus. Um, and then to all the other mothers here, as, as Isaac said, like mothers give, they sacrifice, they serve, and they should be recognized and, and appreciated. And, and I was just thinking, you know, the ministry of a mom is really... Like, not just as a cliche, but genuinely, it's one of the most, I think, powerful and most impactful ministries that there can be. Because we think like, hey, we want to be about discipleship. What other discipleship setting do you get where you spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 18 years with one or two or five or 12 kids, you know, or people? Like, like a pastor will maybe once or twice a week speak for an hour right, to a group of people. Or if you're like in a discipleship setting, maybe you meet weekly with somebody for, you know, a couple hours and talk with them and, and teach them the Bible. And, but that's all like a fraction compared to what moms do, right? And dads, but this is Mother's Day. So dads, we get your own day another day, right? So moms, you're doing a good, a good work, right? So happy Mother's Day to you all. And before we, before we get started, I also just want to acknowledge that um, there are also those uh, some of us here who um, Mother's Day isn't really a happy day, and there are people who've had it who've had it hard. There's strained or broken relationships with with your mom, or maybe as a mom with your kids, makes Mother's Day pretty hard, right? Those who've lost a child, right, due to to miscarriage or something similar, or even you know later in life, you know, accident or illness, like this Mother's Day can be a hard day. Uh, there's those who are unable to have kids or have not yet been able to have kids and really want to have kids, it can make Mother's Day a hard day. So as Romans 12 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Uh, so we want to simultaneously celebrate mothers, but also acknowledge that if you're one of those that this is a hard day, it's okay. It's okay to not be okay today, and we can simultaneously rejoice and weep at the same time. Um, so we're going to be going through Scripture a little differently. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, today, but let's stand together, let's pray, and we're going we're gonna to get into uh, God's Word. 
So Lord Jesus, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would speak to us, Lord. We pray that you'd open our ears, open our hearts to hear what you have to say. Pray that you would encourage um, uh, not only the mothers, that you would encourage the mothers here, Lord, but also that you would encourage each one of us to be faithful in the ministry you've given us, to be faithful when no one's looking, to be faithful when we don't feel noticed and we don't feel seen, Lord. We just pray you'd open your word to us. I ask you, Lord, would you just, um, just set a watch over my lips to speak your word clearly, um, to say only what you would have me to say. It would be nothing of myself and only of you, Lord. Um, so we just, uh, just ask you to give your Holy Spirit uh, to give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So today's study is, is called the Hall of Unseen Faith, or Unglamorous Faithfulness. It's not exclusively a Mother's Day sermon because there's a lot of us who aren't mothers, and I don't want you guys to be bored being like, well, great for the mothers to get their own sermon. But there is encouragement for mothers, but there's also encouragement for, for fathers, for kids, for grandparents, for young adults, for young marrieds, old marrieds, right? New parents, old parents, everyone in between, right? There's, I believe there's encouragement in this passage for all of us. And here's, here's the main encouragement, okay? The main encouragement is this. Be faithful in your ministry, be faithful in your ministry. Now, some of you guys might be thinking, I'm not in ministry. You're in ministry, and you're half right. Which also means you're half wrong, by the way. Did the math. Here's a reality about all believers. Maybe you've never heard this before. You're in ministry. Fact. I missed it. There you go. Okay, there it is. Fact. Okay. The program has some fun effects, okay? So I, I got to have a little bit of fun. But this is a reality of all believers. You are in ministry, Okay, so if you're in here, if you're breathing, blink if you know you're in ministry. Okay, great. We've got it, okay? Now, a very common idea of ministry, this is one that I kind of absorbed uh, for a long time, is, is there's this divide between people who are in ministry and people who are not in ministry. So you've got these people, right? You've got pastors, elders, you've got church employees, you've got missionaries. Those are the people who are in ministry who are doing ministry. And then you've got everyone else, right? There are some who... They serve, they serve other people, and then everybody else gets ministered to, right? Kind of like at a restaurant, you know? There's the waiters and the cooks, and then, and then there's all the, the people who come and eat. That's not how the body of Christ works. And so I, I kind of had this understanding when I, early on when I first started um, working here uh, about five years ago, I, I realized a ways into it that I had this, this idea, not like, I'm a pastor and, and I have to do all the work and nobody else is. But I just felt like, well, I should be doing all the work because like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm a pastor. But then I, I read this passage in Ephesians 4. And I highlighted a, a couple words in this. We're going to read 4, 7 through 16. So if you have your thumb there, you can, you can follow along there uh, or see it on the screen. And Paul says, but to each one of us, each one of us, every one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each one of us has been given a gift of grace. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Verse 9, now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower part of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Right, so after Jesus went into the grave, he ascended, right? He ascended back into heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit who filled the disciples and us with power. Verse 11, and he gave, and he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, some evangelists, some 
pastors and teachers. So I, I, I paid attention at that one and said, wait, what's my job? It says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Notice, it doesn't say he gave some to be all these things, pastors and teachers, for the work of the ministry. No, it's for equipping the saints. That's all of us for the work of ministry. So the job of a pastor teacher and these others is to, of all the people in the body of Christ, their responsibility before the Lord is to teach God's word to all of us in such a way that we are all now able to go and do ministry. And it says the purpose of it, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So this is talking about growth. Right? This is talking about growing in our faith, not staying babies in our faith, but growing up right? to the point where we are able to contribute. Right? It says, but speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things, right? in every spiritual area, into him who is the head, Christ. So Christ is the head from whom the whole body, that's us, so the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. You are all part of the body. We are all a joint, a finger, a hand, a toe, a foot, a mouth, all those things. We're all a part that is all knit together, working together. It says, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Not some parts, not a couple parts, every part. That's all of us. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So we are all called to be part of this thing called ministry, right, of serving, which, which leads to building up the body of Christ and also reaching out to bring people into the body of Christ. So what does our ministry look like? We're going to look at three passages really quick. I'm just going to put them up on the screen so you don't have to, to flip there. What does it look like? Romans 12 uh, kind of has a similar idea. Romans 12, 4 through 6 says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, so having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, we've all been given different gifts by God's grace. It says, let us use them. So the first part of our ministry is to use the spiritual gifts that we have received, right? So every one of us who's put our faith in Jesus, he gave us spiritual gifts. All of you, no matter what age you are, you have something to contribute through the power of the Holy Spirit to contribute to the body of Christ and to bring people to him. The next passage is Matthew 18. The last three verses of it were right before Jesus ascends into heaven. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's speaking to his disciples and he says, go, therefore. That's the second thing, go. We're to be active and intentional in ministry. It's not just something where we just kind of sit around and wait for it to happen. We're supposed to be intentional about going. Right? And he also tells us in Acts 1 where to go. Uh, right before his ascension, Jesus says to his disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses where? He says, be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. That's three places. So from where they were in Jerusalem, that was the local place close by. Judea and Samaria was the surrounding area, and the ends of the earth was everywhere else. Okay? So that's, you could call that, that's your home. That's your neighborhood, and that's everywhere else that you go. 
That is what we're called to. We're, we're supposed to go there. And the third thing is, he says, go therefore and make disciples. He didn't say make fans of Jesus, make people who tolerate Jesus or show up to church on Sunday. No, he says make disciples. That means students of Jesus. Our mission in evangelism, in sharing the gospel, in discipleship is to help people become students of Jesus and students of his word. And he says make disciples of all nations. Baptizing, that's the fourth thing, is to baptize and that's, baptism is the next step of obedience for those who have begun to follow Jesus. It's a step of growth saying, I'm going to make a public confession of what has happened on the inside. That doesn't happen if you tell somebody about Jesus and then you never see him again. That comes through learning. That comes through explaining to them, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And as they mature in their faith, they say, yes, I want to obey Jesus because I love him and I serve him. And so therefore, I'm going to get baptized. This is like the first step. Okay, so we're to be baptizing, helping people understand that. And, and the fifth thing he says, we're to be teaching. He says, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So to teach others about Jesus. So every single one of you has the call on your life to be able to teach God's word to other people. That doesn't mean you have to stand up here on a stage and teach a crowded room, but you can teach one person. And one person's, I think, slightly less scary than a whole room full of people, right? I don't know if you guys would rather do one or three people versus come up here, right? But he's called us to teach others about Jesus, which means we have to know the word. How, can you, how else can you teach it? And then the last thing, Romans 15, he says, Paul says, I am confident uh, concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. That word admonish can also be translated as counsel one another. And this means that it, not only teaching people about God, but helping them applying God's word, the truth of God's word, to different areas and struggles and challenges that we face in life, right? It says you are able to do this because you have God's word. It's a part of teaching someone's God word. God's word is applying it to them. So we are all called to those things. Not a few people. The whole body is called to all these things. So it brings us back to this. You are in ministry, right? Because ministry just means to serve. And who do we serve as Christians? We serve Jesus. We serve Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. And so we serve him. We obey him. We do these things. And part of that means that we are serving others as well. So now we have that fact. We're all, we're all together, right? That's the, we get back to the main point of today's study, which is to be faithful in your ministry. Be faithful or trustworthy. Be consistent in your ministry. Now, there's the reality that it's not, ministry is not just, and our faith is not just what is seen in the public eye, right? When other people are, are watching, the bulk of faithfulness in ministry happens in times when no one can see. Right? It happens in the mundane things. It happens in the routine, the routine things. It's, it's seven days a week. Right? It's not just show up at church on Sunday and you're faithful that day. It's all throughout the week. It's when people aren't looking. And oftentimes, we can get discouraged because we're like, man, I'm trying to just serve the Lord and be faithful, and, and nobody appreciates all the things that I'm doing. Right? We feel, it's very easy to feel unseen. And so that leads us to Hebrews 11. The Hall of Unseen Faith. Typically, Hebrews 11 has the, the nickname, this passage, the Hall of Faith, right? It's where we read about all these 
you know, men and women of faith and just the way that they served the Lord and the great things they did. But actually, I think it talks, what we're going to look at today is, is the unglamorous faithfulness that we see. Because you might be thinking, right, like, my faithfulness, my ministry, it's not really going to be noticed because I'm not Billy Graham, I'm not Charles Spurgeon, I'm not Abraham or David or one of these people. I'm just a normal me, right? Anybody else feel that way? I'm just a normal person. Like, I'm not one of those guys. So you might think that Hebrews 11 is a terrible place to go because we're like, the hall of faith, it's the superheroes, it's these people of super strong faith, and they're up there and I'm down here. But actually, I think it's a great place to look because what we're going to see, we're going to notice two things in Hebrews 11. We're going to see, yeah, the highlight reel, but we're going to see, number one, how much faithfulness went unrecorded in their life, right? Even in the lives of these people who have three or four stories told, there was a lot of faithfulness in their life that we can observe, that we can imply, but it doesn't specifically detail and outline. And number two, we're going to see how many sins and blunders and weaknesses that the Bible captures and describes about all these people that were like, they're the superheroes of faith. So we're going to fly through Hebrews 11. We're going to briefly touch it because the purpose is not to just just read it all and, and look at the highlight reel. We're going to look at the behind the scenes stuff. If you want an in-depth study, um, Pastor Ben finished teaching through Hebrews uh, not that long ago, uh, and he spent 14 sermons in Hebrews 11. I went back and counted. So if you want to go back and listen to the sermons on the podcast or on the sermon archive, it starts in October 2019 um, and goes through October 2021. I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know. It goes for a couple months, right? But he he goes in-depth. So if you want in-depth, go there. Today, we're going to blaze through it. So like I said, we're not looking at the highlights. We're going to look at it, what was behind? What is in the unseen uh, faith? You think of it like if you watch a football game, right, on Sunday, you see three hours of an athlete's life. And if they do great, you might see like 20 seconds of their highlights. But we understand that they don't just sit around and show up to the stadium on Sunday, right? They work and work and work. And the ones who are really good, it's because of the faithfulness in their training and and practicing and sacrifice that leads up to those moments to be able to make these crazy plays and have the highlight reel, okay? So as we look at kind of the highlight reel of Hebrews 11, what we're going to be looking for is the unseen. We're going to look at the unglamorous faithfulness of these biblical characters. So Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. So the people who are in this chapter, they are here by faith, not by perfection, not because they worked really hard, but it's by faith. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen are made of things which are, the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. That's a whole sermon for another day, uh, so we're just going to keep going. Um, and then we get to Abel. Here's our first example. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. There's not a lot recorded about Abel in the Bible. We get seven verses from the time he is born to the time that he gets killed by his brother. Okay, he's born, and we find out he's a shepherd, right? He he tends sheep. We found out he brought an offering to the Lord and that the Lord respected Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's. And then we find out in the next verse that Cain is upset 
and he goes and kills his brother Abel. That's all we have, right? That's all we have of his life. Now, we understand as we, as we look into it that it was not the content of their sacrifices that caused God to reject one or the other. It was the content of their hearts. It was the content of their hearts. Abel's sacrifice, it flowed out of his heart because it says that through his sacrifice, he obtained witness that he was righteous. He was witness to that he was living a righteous life. So the snapshot that we see of Abel, of him bringing the sacrifice, we know it, it, it pleased God because his life was pleasing to God, because his heart was pleasing to God, which means that he had faithful character in the way that he lived his life, which we know nothing about up until that point. And because of that, when he came to give a sacrifice, his sacrifice was pleasing to God. But we can also assume that his interactions with his family were pleasing to God. The way he took care of his sheep was pleasing to God. The the day-to-day things that he did in his life were in faithfulness to God, and therefore his sacrifice was as well. So we can conclude that the majority of his faithfulness went unrecorded, and we just have one event. Nobody else but the Lord knows the rest of Abel's story, but his faith in the unseen moments, that was the foundation for the moment that we heard about, that we read about here, that the Holy Spirit says that Abel did this by faith. Verse 5, Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken away, so he did not see death and, he, and was not found because God had taken him. <clears throat> For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch has five verses, not much. We find out who his dad was, who his son was, and in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 5, we find out Enoch walked with God. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not because the Lord took him. That's all we got of Enoch's life. And here he is in the hall of faith. It doesn't even say that he like killed a giant or moved a mountain or like did a miracle. His thing, he walked with God. He walked with God and he pleased God. That's why he's in the hall of faith. Because for 365 years, that's how long he lived, he just walked with God. It was simple faithfulness, day in and day out. Nothing spectacular. And then verse 6, it kind of elaborates on this. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Because it says, Enoch pleased God, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God <clears throat> must believe that he is, and that he is a reward of those who diligently seek him. So if we would please God like Enoch did, what does he want us to do? Walk with him. Be with him. Walk in the Spirit, right? Our faith doesn't have to be these crazy mountaintop heroic moments where we're like doing all these crazy things that people are going to write about. No. Genuine faith looks like just walking with God day in and day out. That means faith in the mundane, boring, routine parts of life. Really exciting, huh? So that, that brings us the question is that is the pattern of your life Not the highlight reel, but it is the pattern of your life, of my life, that you walk with God and that you please God. Like, what what does the routine of your life say? Verse 7, Noah. Noah Noah gets a little bit more real estate in the scripture, right? A little more than five verses, right? It says, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So what's interesting is that the first thing we read about Noah in the Bible is, is talking about how the whole world was corrupt and everyone just did what was, was right in their own eyes and just evil continually. 
And then we get to Noah. It says, but Noah, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the next verse says that he was a just man, perfect in his generation. Before he built the ark, he was 500 years at this point when God called him to build the ark. What was he doing for 500 years that God would say, you're a just man? That God would look at and say, that pleases me. That he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We don't know. We don't have any details except that he was a just man. And this is not just 500 years just in a, in a nice world. 500 years in a corrupt world where things were getting worse and worse. That's a lot of unseen, unnoticed, unrecorded faithfulness, isn't it? And then God told him to build the ark, and that took at least 60, 80 years, right? When was the last time you spent 60 years doing one thing that God told you to do, right? We have trouble with like two-week things, right? Try a 60-year thing. That's a lot of getting up in the morning, eating whatever breakfast they had, like just faithfully working out what God had called him to. And you know how scripture sums up that 60 to 80 years of faithfully working on the ark? It says, this Noah did according to all that God commanded, so he did. How's that for elaboration and affirmation of your faithfulness? He did it. So Noah, another member in the hall of faith, whose life is marked by long, slow, unrecorded faithfulness. Then Abraham. Abraham gets a lot of real estate, right? We have lots of stories from his life. Um, in this chapter, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was. Right, so here, he's 75 years old at this point. God calls him and says, go to land, I'll show you where it is later. And he went. Okay, He did it. Verse 9, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So we read about Abraham living in the land, but not as a permanent residence because, resident because it says he dwelt in tents in the land of promise. God told him, go to the promised land. And he went there, but he didn't start building a city. Like, how crazy is that? That he was in the promised land. He's like, I'm where you told me to go. Like, let's build the city, right? But he dwelt in tent because God hadn't told him to build the city yet, and he was going to wait until God was going to do it. He was waiting for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So there's a lot of waiting mixed in with Abraham's faithfulness, right? Because what we see in Scripture of Abraham is from the time he's 75 to the time where he's 175, so 100 years. That's how old he was when he he died. And God had told him, you're going to be a great nation at 75. 25 years later, at 100, God gives him a son. So now his great nation is now Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Okay, now he's, he's at three. You know how long he had to wait for grandkids? Till he was 60, or he had to wait 60 more years. Okay, till he got his first grandsons, twins. So now that's five. Great nation. Abraham didn't see it. He didn't see that great nation. Like, that's not even like a big homeschool family. Like, five. That's small. But he looked forward to it, trusting God. And I think that should be an encouragement to us that there are times in our lives when faithfulness and ministry has to be mixed with patience and waiting. Because we're not going to always see the fruits of our faithfulness now. Like, we want to just go tell somebody about Jesus or tell our kids about Jesus and be like, boom. They get saved. Their life changes. They're like, totally, you know, just turn around. They become like these crazy evangelists, like, and we're like, man, that was awesome. It all happened in a day. That's not how it works, though. 
Like most of us, we probably aren't going to see the result of the faithfulness to the Lord in our lives, right? It's years before sometimes the children start following Jesus and the grandchildren, right? How many of you guys have grandchildren that you're pouring into, that you're trying to encourage, who are like eight or nine or ten? And by the time they start following the Lord, you guys might not be here. I don't mean that to be like negative or whatever. That's just circle of life, right? But your faithfulness matters now, but we have to be patient in it. Be patient. Like Isaac was saying, be patient in the praying, right, for your kids to follow him. Then we get to Sarah. We get to Sarah. So by faith, Sarah herself also received the strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born many as the stars of the sky and multitude innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So Sarah, she's there, right? With Abraham, we know that she's there, but she's kind of in the background. She didn't have a lot of like main parts of, in the story. And she had some rough moments too. Uh, but it says here that she judged him faithful who had promised to do what he said he was going to do. At the very least, she did that. And because of that, the nation of Israel was born because Abraham couldn't do it by himself. Right? And then, and then it, the author of Hebrews kind of gives a little interlude. Right, Verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and they were assured of them. And I think in this passage, he tells us about three things about those who live by faith, because these people are living by faith. They are far off from seeing the promises. They are far off from Jesus. But I think the first thing we see is that those who live by faith believe this world is not their true home. It says, not, you know, they didn't receive the promises, but they were far off, and they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They were looking for something in the future. The next thing, verse 14 continues, those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return. So the second thing is that those who live by faith don't look back at their old life. Because when you look back, it's easier to go back. So we shouldn't even look back. So if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. They would have found a way to go back into their old life if they wanted to, but God had called them out. So if we're going to live by faith, don't look back at the old life. And then the third thing is they look forward to a better and heavenly home. This is verse 16. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So we know, as we live by faith, that he has gone to prepare a place for us. That's what Jesus said. And as a result of grace, Titus 2 says that, that the grace of God, which brings salvation, has appeared to all men, teaching them various things. And it says, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So part of walking with Jesus now, being faithful now, is keeping our eyes on eternity. He's going to bring us one day to the place that he has prepared for us. Now, another story of Abraham. He gets a lot of stories. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which also he received him in a figurative sense. So a lot of these stories are, 
are not these crazy stories. This is a crazy story. This is one of the highlight reels, right, of the great faith that Abraham had. God asked him to give up his only son. Go put him on the altar. He's like, but this is the son that was supposed to, like, you gave me a promise I was going to have a great nation, and now we can't have a great nation if... He didn't say that. He might have thought that. He just did it. And as it says in the story in Genesis, one commentator pointed out, not only did he do it, but he got up early to do it. It says he got up early the next morning, and he went out, and he took Isaac up to the mountain. Now, I want to ask, are you guys know the end of the story. God spared him. He provided a, a ram, you know, a lamb in the place of Isaac, and he was, it was a test. He wanted to see if Abraham was faithful. But here's the question. Did Abraham's faith suddenly appear in that moment when God asked him? No. It existed. It was already there. At this point, he's 100 and something years old, right? 125, whatever. His faith had been there all along. And now, when God asked him to do something, his faith was ready. It was already there. It already laid the foundation. And I think that that encourages us that, that we're not going to be ready to trust God with big things if we won't trust him with little things. If we're not trusting him the day-to-day, if we're not walking with him, then when he says, hey, I want you to do this thing that you're like, I don't even understand why, if we won't trust him with the little things, we don't, we don't have a shot at the big things, right? So let's be faithful in the little things. Let's trust God in the small things. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So what's interesting about these guys who had, they all had their, their moments, is that what it records, three very similar things, wasn't something they did in the prime of their life, and the strength of their youth, in some like crazy thing. They didn't talk about, you know, Jacob wrestling with, you know, wrestling with God, or, or seeing like these visions. No, it was simply, it was all that they blessed their descendants with reference to the promises that God had made to Abraham. So it wasn't these great acts of faith. It was, they believed the promise. That was their act of faith. Now, Isaac and and Jacob, they had some good moments. They had some rough, human, sinful moments. But Joseph is interesting. Let me me read the, the verses. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff, and by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. So all of them gave these blessings to their sons or grandsons, to their descendants, with reference to God is going to fulfill his promise. That was what their faith was in. We think of Joseph. You think of the highlight reel of things that could have been mentioned about Joseph. And he is another great example of patient faithfulness because he waited a lot. And he went through a lot, right? Think about his faith in the bottom of the pit as his brothers threw him there. As he was, you know, tied up and behind a camel or something and dragged into Egypt as a slave. As he was there in Egypt alone, far away from home, like he had nothing, he had nobody, but he had the Lord, right? Think of his faith just in the day-to-day, the mundane routine as he served in Potiphar's household, as he was accused by, by Potiphar's wife, as he sat in jail, as he stayed in jail after the, the, you know, he, he interpreted the baker and butler's dreams and he was forgotten. He had a lot of hard, painful waiting to do. But we see that his faith remained through his life in those things. It was in the mundane things. His faith stayed strong. Now we get to Moses. He's got a lot of highlights, right? 
But first, we actually get to his parents. It's by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. So we're talking about his parents' faith. Because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. We know nothing about Moses' parents. We're told nothing about their life in Scripture. But we see in this moment that they feared God more than they feared the king. That was the pattern of their life. That was something that is not easy to do. They were already rooted in a fear of God, saying, it is better for us to obey God, honor God, than it is to obey the king. So we don't know anything about their life, but we can conclude based on that. They were faithful. They were faithful. There's a lot of unrecorded faithfulness in their lives. And then Moses, when he became of age, by faith, it says, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So we see Moses, by faith, he left Pharaoh's courts, right? He had been raised by Pharaoh's daughter after she you know, rescued him out of the Nile, but he chose, I'm not going to stay in this life. I'm going to be with God's people. He rejected the riches to be with God's people. Now, the means of getting there was he killed an Egyptian, because he was trying to rescue on his own strength, and then he got found out, and then he left town, and he was in Midian for probably 40 years or something, right? But we know the Lord didn't abandon him there, but he spent a good chunk of time out in the desert as a shepherd, right, before God used him. Then verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You think of, he saw God Right? as the fire, the burning bush, as God told them. And so that gave him the strength. He had the faith to go to the king, the Pharaoh, who he could see. He rejected Egypt, and he didn't fear the wrath of the king because he had seen the invisible God. And then this all culminated right in the last plague. There was 10 plagues that he did, and he said, let my people go. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So Moses... By faith, he led the people in keeping the Passover. He trusted God's word that the blood of the spotless lamb on the doorpost of each home would protect them from the angel of death, which led them to, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Right now, at first glance, you're like, oh, this is the faith of the, the children of Israel. But actually, when you read the story and you actually other places in Hebrews, it talks about they really didn't have faith. They were scared. They wanted to go back. They complained, like, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. So this is the faith of Moses leading them through the desert, or through the Red Sea. And then they ended up in the desert, and they just wandered around because of their unbelief. They didn't enter in, the book of Hebrews says, because of their unbelief. And who was leading them? Faithful Moses, for 40 years in the desert, wandering around. Moses didn't get to enter in either, but he was faithful that 40 years. There's a few stories, right, of their time, you know, God providing different things for them, and then them still complaining five minutes later, just like we do. But I want to ask, like, Moses, he's in the Hall of Faith. He's got, like, four stories, right? What did his faith look like in that 40 years? Just picture it, 40 years, with, like, a million people camping, hiking, camping, then hiking, then camping, and hiking in circles, in the desert, with the same people. You guys have all been on camping trips. By the time you're done, you're glad to all sleep in your own beds. Now imagine that for 40 years with a million people in the desert. Tell me a story of someone who has more patience than Moses. 
I'll wait. Obviously, the Lord, but, but Moses was faithful in what was probably a really miserable circumstance, right? 40 years. Now, the next thing we see is actually the next generation of the children of Israel, those who weren't whining and complaining. So they entered into the promised land. Joshua was leading them. The Lord instructed them, go into the promised land, take down Jericho. You know what they did? They believed God and they walked around in circles. Sounds kind of familiar, but they actually had a, a purpose. They did it for seven days. Walls came down. Right? This isn't some tremendous thing. They didn't attack the wall. They didn't siege it. They didn't come up with one of those you know, fancy like, you know, Trojan horse things where they came up with a trick to get into Jericho. No, it was, they just walked around and they trusted God. Now, in the middle of that is a story about Rahab. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. And we learn about Rahab because we only learn a little bit about Rahab. She's in basically two chapters is that she had heard what God had done for the children of Israel. Kind of sounds like she believed it more than they did, what God had done. And so when the spies came in, she showed them kindness, they, and so they spared her life. And then what we read is that she went and lived with the people of Israel. She changed, her life changed, right? She, she had faith in God, and her life changed. She ended up actually marrying one of them, a guy named Salmon, who, and she ended up being in the lineage of Jesus, because you know who Salmon's son was? It was Boaz, which means that Rahab was Boaz's mom, which means Rahab was Ruth's mother-in-law. Crazy, huh? Their stories are far apart in the Bible, but it's there. So we see a couple little snapshots of Rahab's life, but we also but we see the long-term fruit of her faithfulness, both in, I mean, Boaz seemed like a pretty stand-up guy, so she raised a good son, and she was in the lineage of Jesus. But all the faithfulness in between is unrecorded. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also David and Samuel and the prophets. So bear in mind, we're only seven books of the Bible in. There's still 61 more books in the Old Testament. And uh, the author's saying, yeah, and we're out of time. He must have been a Calvary preacher. <laughs> right? But these four men, right? They're, they're four of... of the judges in the book of, of Judges, right? They're mentioned here. They're men who had faith. But I think they're kind of in here as examples of God can use these people even though they made some really big blunders, which is really encouraging to us. Because Gideon, he was a fearful leader. Right? God called him to go and, and, and he was going to deliver the, the Midianite people, this massive army. He doesn't even give a number. It says they were like grasshoppers. They were just too many to count. And God delivered them with 300 people. But Gideon was... You know, he found him hiding in a threshing floor. He was scared. He's like, I don't, I don't know if you really want me to go, so I'm going to put out a fleece. And, and then afterwards, he didn't even want to rule the people. He's just like, no, you guys can let God rule, the, rule you. Like, I'm not going to do it, but make me this golden image. And he ended up worshiping it. He didn't really end super great, but God used him. Barak, how he made it in here, I don't know. Because he's in the story of Deborah, and he's the guy who they needed to go to war. And he's like, I'm not going without you, Deborah. And so she had prod him. At one point, she says, get up. We have to, like, go fight. And so he did, and his faith is mentioned here, but he's not exactly a guy who you're like, hey, son, be like that guy. But he's in here. Samson, we know about him, the womanizing leader. Right? He had supernatural strength. He did these crazy things. And, like, we was like, oh, man, it'd be awesome to be a Samson. But he kept having this downfall of getting involved with ungodly women and that ended up with him getting his hair cut off where all his strength was. 
His eyes gouged out. He was a slave, just like treated like an animal. His final act of faith, I guess he ended well, was he cried out for the Lord for strength to knock down the pillars, right? At the palace, there's a bunch of people above. It killed him and many people. So he had epic strength. He did mighty deeds, but he was just ensnared by his own sin. And then Jephthah, which is a crazy story. He was a crazy leader. He fought all these battles. They're like, you should come lead us. We need you to win some battles. And then he's like, if the Lord lets us win this battle, I'm going to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. And it was his daughter. And like, why would you make that vow? I don't understand. Um, Like, why do you have chickens in your house or cows? I don't understand. But it's really kind of a terrible story. It doesn't really tell you exactly what happened. And I'll let you guys read commentaries to see how some people say he actually did it. Some people say, no, he didn't actually do it. I don't know the answer. And then David. David gets three letters also of David, but we're out of time. How many things could be said of David, right? We actually know a lot about David's life, all the mighty deeds, slayed Goliath, you know, slaying the 10,000, serving Saul. He fought battles with mighty men. He, you know, ruled Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. He wrote like a ton of Psalms. But think about how much time David spent waiting because he had great faith going to Goliath as a shepherd boy. What was his faith like? Doing his chores. All right, kids, this is for you guys. David was doing his chores faithfully. He was tending the sheep. He was the youngest. He got the job that nobody else wanted. He was the little brother that the older brothers didn't like. But he did that faithfully, and he trusted God, and he saw the way that God delivered a bear and a lion into his hands. And so when he saw Goliath, he's like, I've never heard of a Goliath, but I'll kill it too, because he trusted the Lord. What was his faith like in those moments? When he was serving Saul in the court, right? He had been anointed as, as king, but he's serving Saul, who's the king right now. Like, that must have been hard, but he just served faithfully. Or when he was all those years running from Saul, trying to kill him, you know, living in caves on mountains, running for his life. What was David's faith like in the hard times, in those times, right? The fearful times when your life is on the line. We actually learned that not only was David faithful, but he was fruitful because he did us the favor of journaling for us. And we call them the Psalms. And how many of those Psalms flowed out of the waiting, flowed out of the distress, flowed out of the hardship, right? It wasn't like he didn't write any Psalms until he was king, and then once he was king, he's like, I'll just sit around writing Psalms all day. No, it was in the middle of those things. So I think the Psalms, as we read them, they should be a lesson to us of how to process the, the, the mundane and the hardship in our life and the difficult times. Because, I mean, how many Psalms say, how long, O Lord? How many of you guys have asked that question during a hardship, during a trial? How long, Lord, are you going to leave me in this? Probably all of us, right? But also, how many of us have been in just the routine parts of life where we're like, there's nothing exciting happening. I'm just getting up, do the same thing. I don't even know what day it is. How long, O Lord? And David encourages us that we can be faithful in those mundane things. And then you get Samuel and the prophets, right? It's like a great 80s band name, Samuel and the prophets. But really, Samuel was kind of like, he was like the, really one of the first of the prophets in the Bible. All the rest, <laughs> talk about overlooked, they just get lumped together. The prophets, right? But you think how many years they spent prophesying to people who just didn't even listen, continued unrepentance, right? It's hard enough. Right, being faithful in a big community where everybody else is trying to be faithful and encouraging you. But try being faithful when everybody else is rejecting you, persecuting you, despising you, making fun of you for being faithful. But they did it. 
Okay, the rest of the verses don't even have a name attached to them, but we understand that these things that people did or endured could only be done or endured through an already existent faith. So it says, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mocking, scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So all those people who endured all those things, walked through all those things, and did all those things, they did it looking forward to the promise of Jesus coming. Now we have the benefit of looking backwards. This happened. Jesus came. They were looking forward to it. Something's coming. Now we get to look forward and we say, it was Jesus who came. I got to say, you know, say hindsight's twenty twenty. We get to look at it in hindsight. Of Jesus came. He kept his promise. So therefore we can be faithful. They said, God is going to keep his promise. He will bring deliverance and we don't know when, so we're going to be faithful. If they can do it, we can do it. So two applications as we close. Number one is be faithful in your ministry even when it seems unnoticed. So we talked about faith in Christ and serving Christ. It's two sides of the same coin. You can't have one or the other. So what has God called you to? Where has God put you right now? What has he put before you to do? Do it faithfully with all your heart. It's like Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So you know, most of your ministry, it goes unnoticed right, by other people, but not by the Lord, which is great because you're not really serving other people ultimately, you're serving the Lord. So be faithful, right? All of these Hall of Faith people, they had years of faithfulness that nobody knows about. Countless small things that they were faithful in that nobody but the Lord knows. So if you're walking with the Lord, you can trust that he has led you. He has guided you to where he wants you to be. So look around. Who's around you? That's your mission field. Serve them. Minister to them. Preach the gospel. Employees, that's to your coworkers. That's to your customers. That's to your bosses. That's your mission field. Bosses, your employees and customers, students, your classmates and teachers, or possibly your siblings and parents. Minister the gospel to them. Grandparents, you know your mission field. You sugar them up and send them home, right? That's your mission field. It's your kids, your grandkids. And if you don't have any grandkids, you don't have grandkids nearby, who doesn't love an extra set of grandparents, right? There are lots of kids out there who don't have grandparents or who don't have godly grandparents. You have a mission field to love them, to show them the love of Jesus. And you can do it with candy and then send them home, right? Fathers, your wife and your kids are your number one mission field. Husbands, your wife is your number one mission field. Minister the gospel to them. Be faithful in that. Open the word. Pray with them. Make disciples of all nations, and that starts in your living room. It starts in your home, literally in your own backyard. And then finally, mothers, you know your ministry. It's an incredible one. It's a valuable one. You get to minister the gospel to your kids in word and in action. Don't grow weary in well-doing, because you're doing a good work. So let me just remind you, 
all the diapers, all the cereal, all the crayons on the walls, all the laundry, all the dishes, all the diapers, all the, all the things that happen at 2 a.m. where your kids need mom. Right, there's too many of those to list. These are not separate from gospel ministry. These are part of it. You're not trying to get those things done so then you can go and do the spiritual things. Those are the spiritual things. Because you get to be a living, breathing, real, messy example, number one, of God's faithful love to his people, even when they're screaming and poopy. And number two, you get to show your kids how to love. That is a good work. That is a good work. You don't have to be perfect. Let me take that weight off all your shoulders. But we're called to consistency, right? Just consistently do that. And number two, second application is that our past sins and blunders do not prevent us from being faithful now. How many of these people in Hebrews 11 were superheroes? None of them. They were all normal Christians. There's no superhero Christians. There's no special class. Just faithful ones. So true faithfulness is not marked by towing a spiritual line. It's marked by repentance, getting up and continuing. So if you feel discouraged, continue on. You serve the Lord and he sees you. He sees your ministry. And if you feel condemned by past sin, just embrace his forgiveness. Repent. If you haven't, get up and follow Jesus. And if you've never followed Jesus today, if you've never put your faith in him, he has a work he wants to do in you and through you. You've got to come to him. So repent of your sin. Trust that he died to pay for our sin. He rose to give us life. Repent of our sin. We confess him as Lord. He's in charge now. We trust him with our whole life, and he will transform our lives. So after service, there'll be a few people up here. Elders will be up here. My wife will be up here. If anybody needs prayer for just if you're discouraged, if you need grace to, to walk in the Spirit, we'd be happy to pray with you. Or just grab somebody else on the way, because I know most of you would be so happy to pray with somebody next to you. And they also would be happy to pray with you, okay? We're, we're all able to pray for each other, pray for encouragement. Um, so either one, let's, let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we just pray that you would encourage our hearts you draw us close to you, Lord, and um, just pray for, for any who are discouraged, Lord, any who are caught in sin or feel like I'm just not seen. Help them to know they are seen by you, Lord. Um, we just minister these things to us in Jesus' name. Amen.